from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And good day to everyone. It's great to have you here on another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. I welcome everyone checking in from Trinidad and Tobago, from Essex, UK, Scotland, Wisconsin even, coming from a Minnesotan. That's a, that's a gracious act on my part to say, no, I'm teasing, I love the Wisconsinites. I've got a daughter living there. It's great to have you all here uh, for the uh, lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. I'm in studio today with KC up in the booth, silent as always, and I've got Rob here with me, my master technical producer. Rob, how are you this evening? I'm doing very well, Sven, but I must admit I have my share of anxieties, mostly surrounding like getting old. Like, you'll know when you start to lose your hair. <laughs> He's just got the wittiest sense of humor. And I have to ask, Rob, how do you know when you, you're losing your hair? <laughs> in your case, look in the mirror. Yeah, funny guy. <laughs> Not so funny, really. Um, so we're here, and I'm taking your questions. We're on all topics. If you want to one on getting older, you know, I'll take that, too. Um, but, uh, all right. So we're going to go ahead and get going. We're going to dive right in. What have you got for me for questions this evening? All right. Hello from Texas. I finally left my toxic extreme taker or what some people call a narcissist. And yet I'm feeling so sad. Why? Why is it so hard to leave someone? Anytime you invest in anything, Part of you goes with that investment. For instance, if you have kids, every time you drive that little snot to baseball practice, every time you pick them up from school or make them a school lunch or give them a hug and, and hold them while they're crying because they skin their knee and or every time, you know, whatever it might be, you're making one more drop of investment into that. And the more you invest in something, the more well, you're invested. The more it's part of your identity, the more love you've given it. The more it's like every single one of those investments is a cord wrapping around you and it. If it's a child, if it's a person, if it's a, particularly in cases of love and things, or a job or a political campaign, if you're really passionate about that, or helping the homeless, if you're into uh, volunteering and so forth, anything you invest your heart into is like one more cord wrapping around you and that. So when that relationship ends, you get fired from that job or you end your years with that volunteer organization just because you feel burned out or your child goes off to college or your child has a, a has a girlfriend and doesn't want to spend as much time playing baseball with the old man or you know whatever it is. Though we have to unbind those cords. That child, that job, that volunteer organization, that friend, or in this case, that extreme taker, that person you were in a relationship with is moving on, but you still have cords binding your heart to that person. And the process of unbinding those cords is the process of going inside, and as you, you guys have heard me say a million times, flushing out the pain, flushing out the memories. All of the emotional charges that are attached to those memories in that relationship have to be decharged. And we do that by journaling. We do that by counseling. We use that by do, using, we do that by using different techniques I talk about in my book. But here's the thing. 
Here's the thing about extreme takers. I have a video up right now on on TikTok. If you haven't seen it, it's also run Instagram. I, I, it's actually a repost. And what I talk about in the video is that extreme takers or narcissists, as some people like to call them, but I think it's a horribly overused phrase and it's become quite hollow. Um, and so I, I think extreme takers much more descriptive. Um, the thing about extreme takers is they tend to find extreme givers and they sort of feed off each other. One just can't stop taking enough, but the other one, because of what they've been conditioned to believe about themselves, they can't stop giving because somewhere in them, they believe that if I don't give more and more and more and more, you won't love me. And so what happens then in the relationship with the extreme taker sometimes, or even often, is that when the extreme taker leaves the extreme giver who's conditioned to believe I have to give more in order to be loved. The extreme uh, giver then believes, shit, I didn't give enough. Shit, there's something wrong with me. And all those voices that the extreme giver was conditioned to believe about herself or himself, all those voices from the past that set the stage for all this shit in the first place, all of those voices come welling up into the head and they churn and they churn and they churn. Those fucking voices. It's not being alone that you're scared of. It's the fucking voices. It's those fucking messages churning in your head. So you're you're feeling so sad. Why? Because you lost someone that you love. All right, that's the first thing. And that's common to all human experience. But as an extreme giver or in all likelihood, uh, a very, very, very significant giver, if not an extreme giver, um, you're, you have more wrapped in, uh, that you, you've given even more than the average person in a relationship. But on top of it, you've been conditioned to believe that if the relationship fails, it must be something wrong with me. So you've got all that wrapped up in this ugly salad inside of your head on top of the worst of all of it. And that is all those old messages from your past saying, eh, see, you suck. See, I'm alone. I must be no good. See, they left me. I, you know, I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. All that shit. All right. Next question. How do I stop thinking everyone will leave? Emma, you're really asking a very similar question like the last one that has a similar answer, okay, where I was dealing with extreme takers and so forth. You're saying, how do I stop thinking or everyone will leave? You're thinking everyone will leave because you have been conditioned the very same to believe the very same shit as uh, the person in the very last question, and that is that you believe you have been taught and you can't even see these beliefs, these are what I talk about in my book. There's a hole in my love cup. What I talk about is core beliefs. And the thing about core beliefs is they run your entire life. They're full, like a fucking virus in the operating system of your fucking computer. And what do we know about viruses? To the untrained eye, you can't fucking see it. All you can see is the results of the havoc that virus wreaks. So there are core beliefs inside of you you can't see, which is what I attack in my book, is helping you identify those, helping you see them, and then rooting them out. And as you guys have heard me say a million times before, and I steal the quote from my mother who died at the age of 93 last year, and that is, naming the beast is half the problem. Okay, And so we have to go inside and name that. Well, that's what's operating here with you. You ask this question, how do I stop thinking everyone will leave? You have to go inside and find those core beliefs. And if you're thinking everyone will leave, it's because you've been conditioned to believe from a very young age, either that you're not wanted, you're not good enough or unlovable, or you're a piece of crap or you're a loser, or there's something about you that makes you unwantable, okay, unlovable, and then, and or that who you really are doesn't matter. Your feelings don't matter. Your wants don't matter. Who, it, your, your, 
uh, aspirations for your life don't matter. None of it matters. You've gotten those messages somehow or another. And I get people saying to me all the time, well, Sven, I never got those fucking messages. I had great parents. And I say, oh, I guarantee somewhere in your past, you got the message that either you're not wanted, you're unlovable, or you don't matter. The real you doesn't matter. You may matter to the parent because you serve a function in their life. You, you're you supposed to take the care of them or listen to all their problems or be their little shit stick or provide for them or give them love or listen to all their fucking problems, whatever it is. You may serve a purpose in, in their lives, but that doesn't mean your authentic self matters. And so you ask the question, how do I stop thinking everyone will leave? You go inside, begin to identify those voices and the feelings that go with them and how that voice manifested all these times, how those messages manifested all those these times in your life where you've kept yourself suppressed. You've kept your real self, um, you, you've judged, criticized your real self as you obviously do because you're convinced they'll leave. Someone who believes in themselves isn't going to believe that people are gonna leave. They're gonna assume the best or at least that there's a good shot. So you've been conditioned to believe that you're crappy and you ask, how do you stop? You have to go inside. And again, that's what I wrote the book for. That's what all of this is. You have to begin journaling. You have to begin, if you're in counseling or not in counseling, that can be a good tool, assuming you have a good therapist who actually challenges you to go inside and go deep. But you have to get down to that shit and pull out the root of the cause. It's, it's like a weed in your garden. You can't, my mother used to teach me this and I hate it. I fucking hated weed in gardens. My parents had huge gardens, huge. And all six of us kids were involved in different aspects. And I always said to mom, I'll do anything you want in the garden, but I will not pull weeds. Because I was fucking six foot four, <laughs> bending down, stooping to pull weeds or getting down on my knees. And I got fucking dirt under my nails. And it's just like, fuck this. But if you need me to do heavy lifting or transplant plants or, you know, bring a big fucking, you know, five by five or 10 by 10 pile of topsoil to the different parts of the garden, I'll do all that shit, right? I'll trim a fucking tree, anything. Just don't make me weed, please. Anyway, the point with weeds is this. With a weed, you don't just pluck it and throw it in your, you know, off to the side or throw it in your wheelbarrow. You have to sort of dig out the root. Why? Because weeds, <laughs> sort of their nature is they send little runners under the ground. And then another weed pokes up over there. So if you may pluck the head off of this weed, it doesn't mean shit. It's going to pop right back up and it's going to send a runner somewhere else. So it's the same way with these core beliefs, these viruses inside of us is, you know, you can sort of glaze over the surface or pack them down or whatever. But until you get down to the root and pull out the root, it's going to resurface. Next question. Is lying to a spouse regarding favors for a coworker a form of cheating? Husband says no, and Jamie, I'm going to assume you're the wife. I I have to ask the obvious question, Jamie: Is the your husband's coworker female, or if your husband is bi, is your husband's coworker someone that he might be interested in? And if so, uh, lying to your spouse to do a favor for a coworker. Um, is it a form of cheating? Anytime there's deception, anytime there's lying ever, obviously it means by definition, somebody's hiding something. They're hiding something, okay? Now, um, you know, let's say your spouse were on the sly giving $200 to some old guy who had been really nice to him as a kid. Now, it sucks you're fucking lying to your wife, 
But it has a completely different, because maybe your wife says, oh, times are tight and whatever. But it's like, honey, you don't understand. This guy was so good to me as a kid. He was better to me than my own parents. And my parents were gone a lot or whatever. Whatever the, I'm not a fan of lying to spouses, okay? So I'm not trying to excuse it. But we're talking about a different category. If you're, you know, slipping a few hundred bucks to the old man who took care of you as a kid versus you're lying about a coworker who happens to be someone uh, of the opposite gender, and potentially someone you might have an affair with. Yeah, yeah, that's lying of a different stripe. It is, there are different categories, different varieties of lie. I, you know, uh, I lie every time I say that I don't break the law. Obviously I break the law. I don't drive 55 all the time. That's, no, I don't. So, and so that's a low, low grade lie, right? A high grade lie is when something like this, um, Jamie asks, is lying to a spouse regarding favors for a coworker a form of cheating? Is it a form of cheating? Well, the mere fact, it had, then it has to be somebody that you think your husband is interested in sexually. Otherwise, you wouldn't bring up cheating. You would just be focused on lying. Um, has it degenerated to cheating yet? It's, it's significant deception, all right? And it raised the question, why? Why is he lying? What is he covering up? Now, it could be that you have discomfort with the mere discomfort with the fact that it's a female. And so he doesn't want to fucking deal with it. And he just wants to do a favor for a coworker. So on one hand, it could be that, you know, he just thinks you have some, you would have some uh, issue over that, which raises the question, why would he have issue over you um, uh, taking issue with him helping a female coworker? Uh, but the bottom line is he's lying which means he's covering it up, which raises the question, why the fuck is he covering it up? Now, whether or not it's cheating, he's covering up something. And I think the question you should be asking your, your husband is, what is the reason you're covering it up? And your answer can't have anything to do with, I'm somehow the fucking problem. In other words, you don't get to blame your fucking lying on me, <laughs> right? You're excusing your bad behavior because, because of me? Oh, so you get to break the law and I'm at fault? Fuck you. No. Um, but is it a form of cheating? You know, in all honesty, it sort of hints at that. But is it yet? It, I would have to know what the favors are and what the circumstances are beyond that. But I fucking, I, I smell a rat, but it may not be a cheating rat. But somebody's up to sh some shenanigans. He's trying to cover up something. And there's a reason he's trying to cover it up. And there is a possibility that, yeah, He's trying to slowly hustle this coworker. Is there a possibility? Yeah. Is there a distinct possibility? Yeah. But without more information, it's a little bit tougher call. Okay. Next question. All right. Does someone that doesn't want to talk about or avoids talking about problems actually want to fix anything? Well, my first response is no. No. I I, I guess what's what I love about that question is you're almost saying like there's a possibility that they do want to fix the problem. You ask the question, does someone that doesn't want to talk about or avoids talking about problems actually want to fix anything? To me, it's pretty clear that if they're avoiding it and saying, I don't want to talk about it, that they don't want to talk about it, which indicates why would you, or which says to me, why would you even be asking this question? In other words, your question implies there's some reason to doubt as if they may actually want to talk about it. And so I'm wondering what <laughs> what's what causes you to think they may actually want to talk about the problems if they're literally saying, I don't want to talk about the problems and they're avoiding talking about the problems. I think the actions are pretty fucking clear in this case. No, they don't want to fix anything. They want the problem to go away. They want you to quit whining, which is probably how they see it. I'm not saying that's how I see it. 
They want you to quit whining and just shut up. So yeah, do they want to fix the problem? No, fuck no. Because if they did, they'd step into it, not step away from it. All right, next question. Oh, this is great. This is great because this, this cuts right to me. Here we go. Any advice for dealing with the boredom of ordinary life? I love this question so much because this has been one of the vexations of my own life, okay? I can recall, and it's funny, I'm, I'm working on a new book, and I was just writing on this about last week on the notion of boredom, particularly as a child. As a child, I grew up in a, an eight-person home, six kids, and, um, and so there was always action, except during the day, okay? And during the day, during school days, the Everyone would be off at school except me, and then mom was home, unless mom was substitute teaching. Then sometimes I'd be home alone for half the day or whatever, or she'd have a sitter over her. Yes, back in the day, I would spend half a day alone at home. And that was not a problem, as long as there was plenty of food for Sven to eat. Okay, during the day, I would get bored, and I'd go to mom, and I'd say, mom, I'm bored. And she'd say, so be bored. (laughs) Come on, old woman, that wasn't what I was wanting. I'm like four, I'm three, I'm five. Uh, probably not five. I, was, I think I started kindergarten at four. So I was probably three. And I remember this, going to mom in her study. And she'd be reading uh, if she wasn't doing incessant laundry. And she'd say, go so be bored. Or, so what are you going to do about it? Or sometimes she'd give me a thimble and maybe a little box and a piece of string. She'd say, all right, go play. And then it was all it took was her assembling this little hodgepodge. And my imagination would start firing. And it's like, then I, I was good for probably a couple of hours. I'd create my own little world with My Box and String, which parenthetically was the name of a children's book back in the day, My Box and String. Anyway, so boredom has always been a part of my life. And yet I've always known, even since I was young, that I've seen the correlation between boredom and creativity for me. To this day, those who are very close to me know how much time I am disciplined about allotting every single day, every single week to just be alone. If it's just puttering around in my yard, if it's just lighting a fire in the morning out in my fire pit or indoors and just sitting in front of it, sometimes I'm journaling. Or even like today, I had a couple of clients and I just laid on the sofa and put my feet up and I didn't even sleep. I just laid there and I just laid for, sometimes it's 20 minutes, sometimes it's an hour and 10 minutes but I need time alone or it's on my bicycle or when I work out, I get into my own zone for three hours, three and a half hours. I need that. And and so for me, but that can easily evolve and move into boredom. Today was a boring day for me after the clients had several hours and so forth. And that's something I wrestle with because in it is my creativity, yet I know also in it when I'm feeling bored, isn't it interesting with boredom? Inside of boredom, there's agitation. Think about it. And one of the discoveries I had in my own life about uh, 15 years ago was that for me, somebody else may have a different experience. For me, boredom is driven by anxiety. Think about that. You don't think of anxiety and that uh, that agitation and movement and so forth as uh, equated with or related to boredom, but they are. Because at its root, boredom is, if, if somebody says, I'm bored, what they're fundamentally saying is, I want to be doing something. I want to be distracted. I want something to look at. I want something to taste. I want something to drink. I want something to do, right? So it's that wanting. Inside of wanting is a sort of agitation of the soul. 
And so boredom ultimately is driven by anxiety of the want, of what, ha, wanting something that I don't have right now. Again, a distraction, a, a something. And so what I discovered for myself um, many years ago, like 30, is that when I'm feeling agitated or when I'm feeling anything, I allow myself to feel that feeling. If I'm feeling sad, I allow my feelings to come up. If I'm feeling agitation or anxiety, I allow that to come up and I feel it. I allow myself to feel it. And the, here's the thing about feelings. Eventually, and the more intense ones, like a death or a loss of a lover, as we started the show, those take longer. But the more we allow it and allow it and allow it, or what I call flushing it, eventually it passes. Well, it's the same thing with boredom. Rather than running from it, as we so often do, we find distractions. Well, I'm going to take another class, or I'm going to volunteer over there, or I'm going to get a second job or a fourth job, or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, or I'm going to have another, uh, you know, watch another show, or I'm going to smoke another joint, or whatever it is. I'm going to do something more to distract me rather than what if I just sat in the boredom and allowed it to be? And it's fucking asinine. Sit in boredom. Why would I do that? I hate boredom. Precisely. Because you hate boredom, you're running from it. And yet in that boredom is something. And so when I'm in boredom, um, I'll journal about the boredom, what I'm feeling, what's going on inside of me. Or sometimes if I don't have anything really to journal, I'll just lay there and it passes. It passes. So dealing with the, the boredom of life is, is collapsing into it, but also doing the journaling of attempting to discern what is the anxiety, what is the longing, driving from for the boredom, and also addressing what are my mo most common distractions and what is it about boredom I most fear? Well, shit, maybe feelings are coming up from my past. And what are my distractions? And, and are those distractions things I really want in my life? Or is, am I doing those distractions simply because I don't want to feel all the feelings that happen when I feel bored? Much more to come right after this short break. You've heard Sven talk a lot about his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And that's because Sven hears from his followers a lot about how much the book has helped them. If you're not sure how to handle the issues getting in the way of a better life, you're not alone. And you have a lot of choices. But thousands of readers will tell you that this is a great place to start, by yourself and at your own pace. So go to badasscounseling.com and order There's a Hole in My Love Cup, and you'll have Sven right there with you as you forge your best future. It's totally badass. So get started today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Yes, we are back. We are in the middle of a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. Welcome to friends, family, Friends of friends and all of you who are tuning in around the world, it's great to have you here from as far away as Perth, Australia and South Africa. We love having you here and let's dive right back in. I've got a face full of questions right in front of me. All right, here we go. I broke up with my girlfriend three months ago for the fifth time. Why can't I stop thinking about her? And the answer to that question is because you still have cords binding your heart to her. You haven't flushed out all of your feelings of love, as well as likely all the pain that you feel over all the losses and the disappointment. It's the, it's the death of a dream, baby. It's the fucking death of a dream, the dream of that relationship. It's the death of the relationship and what it could be. And death brings grief. <laughs> I had a client, uh, fuck, 25 years ago. And uh, this person, I won't give the gender, and you wouldn't know anyway with 
Um, but the person had lost the sibling in this person's 20s. And uh, the person grew quite discontent with our work together. And again, this is like, I'm in my 30s at this point. And, you know, I had, you know, I was doing a lot of work and so forth, but this person was discontent and said, Sven, listen, I've been working with you for about, you know, 10 hours now cumulatively, and you really haven't done anything. And I'm sorry, I got to let you go. And I'm like, that is totally fair. And I said, I'm even welcome. I'm even willing to refund your money. And this person was, you know, very uh, gracious and professional and said, no, 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 you earn that, you keep that, et cetera. And uh, I said, but I, I do have to say one thing. And the person said, well, what's that? I said, you are right that in, a, in 10 hours, whatever it was of working together, I did not, you know, crack the code of the vault and open the vault and begin to heal you. I said, but let's be really honest. In 10 hours, you didn't open up either. I did every fucking thing. I used every trick, every question, every approach, every defense, every everything to try to crack that code and you are locked the fuck down. And the person to their credit says, well, that's possible. I said, and they said, but uh, something along the lines of, but can you give me an example? I said, sure. I said, you had a sibling die when you were in your 20s. And, and uh, I believe you still have significant pain in you over that death. I don't think you've ever grieved it. And the person laughed at me and said, Sven, that's dumb. I, the day of my sibling's funeral, I cried all day and all night. All night, I got like one hour of sleep and I woke up the next morning then I you know, went back to life. So I grieved. And that was sort of the parting conversation between this person and me. And, uh, and we left it at that, you know, very professional, very cordial, no hard feelings, whatever. But it's, at that point, I realized, okay, this, your sibling died. You, grieve, you cried for a night. You didn't grieve, you cried for a night and you're saying your grieving's done over a dead sibling. So you spent 25, 29 years, whatever, with this person, 29 years, let's say. And you you cried for a night and you're saying you grieved all the fucking pain. No fucking way. And that's why this particular client was engaged in all manners of sort of um, <laughs> addiction to make that fucking pain to distract from all of it. So getting back to the question, hi, I broke up with my girlfriend three months ago for the fifth time. Why can't I stop thinking about her? Because you haven't gotten all of the love and the pain out of you that it's causing you to think about her. You have to, those memories, and I, I've told you guys this before, and I'm happy to tell you a million times more, but when we have memories from our past that cause us to still think about something or obsess over something, it's because we have a memory with, an, with emotional charges attached to it. Okay, like uh, sort of like a, a, a nucleus of an atom and it has electrons spinning around it. You've got those charges spinning around or attached to this memory until you decharge those through counseling, through journaling, through the other tools I talk about in my book, there's a hole in my love cup, until you decharge them, you're going to have a piece of you that is still attached to that person, but is also then triggered. That's what's being triggered when you get triggered over something, it's memories that have emotional charges. So you have to detach those. So you have to go inside and you have to flush out. To the person who asked this question, you have to go inside and you have to flush out uh, the pain and the love and the memories. Um, and as you guys have heard me say before, 
Go to the favorite park where you guys used to like to take walks and walk through it multiple times on your own. Go to go have your favorite sliced pizza wherever you like to have a sliced pizza or your favorite donut shop. Have a donut shop, a donut on your own. Do it multiple times till eventually you're doing these things and they are no longer, and bring a pad of paper with you too and flush out how you're feeling when you're in it because eventually you're gonna go have that donut and coffee at your favorite shop or you're going to, uh, go to your, you know, whatever it is you guys used to like to do together and, and say together or favorite movies to watch, whatever it was, you're going to have those experiences and they're not charged anymore. You've decharged them. You have exorcised the demon. All right. Next question. How do I work through the shame slash disgust I have towards myself and my darkest secrets slash parts of myself? How do you work through it? Uh, first of all, this is what I wrote the book for, and it will hold your hand and take you into that dark cave you fear to enter. It will hold your hand through the hard questions, and it gives you exercise and so forth. That aside, what it's really about is going into the very thing that brings you the most pain in your life, and that is your shame and your disgust and your dark secrets and your darkest part, parts of yourself. You have to understand though, that those secrets, those dark parts of yourself, your shame and your disgust, regardless of what you have done, actively done in your life, more often than not, self-shame, self-disgust is conditioned by shit that was pressed into the wet cement of your soul when you were a child, long before you engaged in any action worthy of self-disgust. And it's that shit that set up everything else. That's the self-conditioning. So your self-shame, your self-disgust, you have to go into, it's, that's the shit you've been running from your whole life. That's the shit that's pulling you down. That's that virus infecting the operating system of you. And you have to, you ask, how do you work through it? You go into it. You start with, start randomly, start anywhere. Again, I, I systematize the whole thing in the book, but start with what's the one memory that you have that you're most ashamed of, that you hate yourself most for, that you feel dirty about yourself when you think about it. Pick one. Pick one memory that has significant emotional charges attached to it, that the mere thinking of that memory makes you feel something, your stomach turned, you cringe, you get you know, goosebumps, you, you know, your blood starts to move more quickly, pump faster, your pits start to sweat. Whatever it is, choose that and flush and flush, and flush, and flush, and flush. Write journal, journal about the memory, journal about how you feel. Well, why do I feel that way? Well, what caused it? Well, what happened? And very often, we the, the simplest way, and when I was a trauma counselor for an airline, this is what I would do, and, and that is you start by relaying what the experience was. Actually lay out the entire experience. Tell me the entire experience, I'd say to the person. And then I'd take them the next step down, and I'd say, now, what were you feeling as that was going on? Okay, so now we're down in the road, and this is this is the charged stuff. Do this in your own journaling, all right? Lay out the whole memory of the experience, everything, every fucking detail that you remember it, all right? And, you know, why was that happening? What do, what, what do I think that person was thinking, et cetera, et cetera? But then go down to, and how was I feeling when she said that? How was I feeling when he pulled that knife on me, or how... What was going on inside of me? How did it feel beforehand? Was I already emotionally charged going into that situation? What All the feelings, flushing, flushing, flushing. Um, and counseling, journaling is a great tool for that. Um, you guys have also heard me talk about the Sedona method, or there's a technique called the accepting technique. There are many techniques, but it's, it's not just, you can't just meditate this shit away. 
highly emotionally charged memories, you can't just meditate away. You can't just exercise away or go to the gym and think they'll go away. You'll release the physical energy, but you're not releasing the emotional charge from the memory because you're still scared of that fucking memory. You can't yoga this away. Namaste won't work on this. Okay, you can't just forgive it. Well, I forgive the person and now the feeling's gone. No, they're not. You just stuff them down deeper. You have to go down there and you have to give them words. And it doesn't have to fucking take forever. Healing does not have to take forever. In fact, transformation can be immediate if you go deep enough, all right? But you have to go into the shit and just keep flushing it out. All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, now we're taking a strange turn here. Not strange, but uh, quite a deviation from the dating and uh, extreme taker slash narcissism stuff we've been going on and the self-hatred, which was a great question. Um how can I help my mother obtain the parenting skills required to raise my six younger siblings? Ooh, wow, that one packs a punch. Okay, Matt, we're gonna just unpack this one and it shouldn't even, it's pretty plain. A couple of things. One, you wanna help your mother obtain, obtain the parenting skills required to raise your six younger siblings. So we know there are at least seven kids. So your mother had seven kids, your mother and presumably father. I doubt she had six kids artificially. So your mother and your father had seven kids and you believe that your mother does not have the parenting skills adequate to raise seven kids. Okay. If you and I were in counseling or just having a few cocktails one night and this came up, I would ask you the question, what is it that makes you think your mother doesn't have the parenting skills to parent seven kids? Furthermore, I would ask the question, what makes you... Is it that she can't parent seven or she can't parent one, let alone seven, all right? Uh, some comedian in the past said, you're not really a parent until you've had three kids um, because if there are two of you parenting, you each get one, but you add that, if you're parenting two kids, you get that third kid and it's a whole different animal. Um, but seven, so is it that she can't parent even if she had just one kid or is it that she can't parent a multitude of kids? And I would offer, you know, anybody trying to do seven kids, God bless you, you are a marvel. Um, but I'm guessing you have firsthand experience. You believe your mother lacks the ability to be a parent, let alone to six, uh, seven kids. And you would be the potentially the one who would know best as the oldest of seven kids. So you, clearly you think she failed on parenting you. Yet obviously somewhere you got a sense of compassion because you feel it for your younger siblings. The question though, to answer your question, how can I help my mother obtain, obtain, in other words, she doesn't have, the parenting skills required to raise my six younger siblings, the, the obvious question for me is, does she want to? Because good luck teaching someone who doesn't want to learn. Ask any teacher anywhere. Good luck counseling someone who doesn't want to be counseled, who doesn't want to open up, right? Good luck, you know, being a spiritual leader as someone who doesn't want to be spiritually led, okay? Good luck consulting a business where the president of the company says, fuck you, I don't need help. Good luck. Okay, does your mom think she have, has the skills? Because if she believes she does, then we're talking about a whole different animal because then basically your task becomes exposing her flaws in such a way that she is open to hearing it. Now, you want to talk about a fucking nasty little snake of a problem. That's one of them right there. Trying to teach someone the, the, their failures and, you know, and how they need help especially in parenting. Remember how I was talking about earlier in the show that um, the 
more we invest ourselves into something, the more our identity becomes wrapped up in that thing. If you're pumping your whole life energy into seven kids, you have to have the belief system, I'm a good parent. Um, or you're likely to develop that. And someone coming along and saying, I mean, you've just invested your whole life uh, in it. And someone comes along and says, you're not a good parent. It's like, you want to fucking destroy someone, that would be the way to do it. Tell someone, anyone, that the thing they've invested their life energy into sucks or they're not good at it and it's going to hurt them. Now, that may in fact be true, and, and, uh, but it's going to destroy them if the, the very thing that is uh, the cornerstone of their identity uh, is found to be false. That's why so many adults, guys, this isn't when, just when you're in your 20s and you're complaining about your parenting. Do you all know how many clients I have? In their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s, where the parent is still alive. Yes, even in the 70s, but especially in 40s and 50s, where they've come to realize, the 40 or 50-year-old comes to realize, Jesus, all the problems. I'm st my mother is still in our system. My dad's still a fucking asshole and won't concede any points on what he did. And so this isn't just something that goes away and it's just this phenomenon of 20-somethings. No, into 40s, 50s, 60s people realizing, holy shit, I not only got fucked over by my parent, but they're still fucking me over to the day. They still want me to take care of them. They still want to complain about my kids or they still want to tell me everything that's wrong with them. And they don't think that they did anything wrong in their parenting. So this isn't just, you know, some one-off. So you're asking the question, how can I help my mother obtain the parenting skills required to raise my six younger siblings? Unless, in all honesty, the short answer, while they're is a possibility of that happening. The short answer is if she doesn't see a problem with her own parenting, the likelihood of you helping her see it is, and then her getting help is almost slim to none. But if she does see problems in her parenting and is opening, is open to being coached or being taught, well, there are a million fucking resources out there for parenting classes, books on parenting, and so forth. But unless someone sees the, the problem, they're not going to be open to the answer. And so the challenge really, and I have to believe this is where the real heartbreak is for you, the challenge is watching your younger siblings who you love, as much as you love yourself, I'm sure, suffer through, endure what you believe to be your mom's uh, poor parenting. However, I do need to say if there is abuse, or if there is hurtful parenting going on, if it's not just, geez, she fucks up a lot, if there's actually hurt or abuse going on, you have an obligation, then you have an obligation to stand up against it. And if you can be plugged in to, you know, short-circuiting that, you have to, and or getting your father to do the same. Um, but, you know, if there's abuse, then the rules, all bets are off, then you have to step in. Um, but I, I have to say, I grieve for your heart because I know this has to be hurting you to see what you believe to be your mom's poor parenting with your six younger siblings. Now let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more badass counseling. My wife pushed me to watch this guy's TikTok videos. So I finally caved in and holy crap, blew me away. I started watching more and every time, time he opens his mouth, I get blown away in a whole new way. So I finally bought his book. There's a hole in my love cup. To say I got an ass kicking is an understatement. Much needed. It was like having my own personal tough therapist who just gets it. So go do yourself a favor. Get There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It's powerful stuff.
back with more to kick your ass. Here's Sven. You goddamn right. I am here to kick your ass and even give you love while I'm kicking your ass. You know, I think of this, my work, speaking of my work, as, you know, as a, you know, counseling people for uh, 30 years and my work in my books, which is all just an extension of my counseling and uh, trying to lead people to a more intimate relationship with their own soul, with their own inner spirit. It's spirituality. It really is. And that's my background as a former clergy person and so forth. It's not religion. It's, I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about your own relationship with your own self. Now, for many people, they see that deepest, uh, most inner voice of their soul as their most direct connection to the God that they worship. And that's great. Then, and I would argue that if you are a God person, at the root of who you are, at the very depths of your soul, your deepest and truest inner voice is indistinguishable from the voice of the divine. But we're talking about soul work here. And, and in my work, um, in all of my work, there is this ass-kicking aspect. Um, why? Because I think we, by nature, avoid the hard stuff. But that's where the healing is. And, and so the ass kicking is done with love. I love every single one of my clients, even the tough ones, even the ones that say, fuck you and walk away. I love them all because I fall in love with that deepest inner voice because I can see it. I can see it and I know it's there in every single person. And so my job in, in often compassionate and kind and defending them ways when the rest of the world has been against them and sometimes grabbing them by the collar, metaphorically speaking, and giving them a good shake. My job is to reach down their fucking throat and start pulling out all the bullshit that they were taught about themselves that was never fucking true to begin with. My job is to pull out the bullshit of all their fears and all their pains within a spirit of compassion. My job is to follow my own fucking curiosity because shit just feels off. And so my job is to push them. And the way I think of it is this. I used to be an NCAA uh, head coach for strength and conditioning. And when my athletes, male, female, non-binary, when they came into my fucking gym, I fucking own you. You will do what I say because I guarantee you there are plenty of people in this world who know infinitely more about strength and conditioning, all right? But it doesn't matter because the bottom, who know infinitely more than me, but it doesn't matter because I know infinitely more than you. Now shut the fuck up and do what I say. That's all. That's all. I am here to reach down and pull out all the crud because below that, I'm going to reach down and I'm going to pull all the greatness out of you. And a great trainer is someone who pushes you. You know, they listen to, you know, when something's feeling off or your shoulder is tweaking and they make adjustments. They know what to do. But a great trainer kicks your ass. If you're not getting your ass kicked by your trainer in the gym, <laughs> what the fuck are you going to your gym for? Seriously. Seriously. You know, if you're not getting your ass kicked by a coach, if you're not getting your ass kicked, by a counselor, a therapist, what the fuck? And an ass kicking for me is loving. Every single one of my clients knows that I love them. Every single one of my clients knows I'm going the fucking extra mile. Every single one of them knows that I come in a spirit of love. And I'm very often I'm stating those questions that way. Listen, I know this is an ugly question. I know this is a hard question, but it's an honest question and it's asked in a spirit of love. And they say, no, no, go ahead, Sven. And then I ask the hard questions because finally people feel like someone gives a shit about them, that they give a shit enough to listen to the story completely and have these nuanced questions. People want to talk about themselves if they're with someone that they know actually gives a shit. 
They will open up if you have the natural curiosity to open up. And so the way you have to think about your counseling, if you're seeing a therapist, and hopefully your therapist sees it this way, and the way you have to think of your own journaling, the way you have to think of your own inner work is that you're going into the fucking gym to get a workout that kicks your ass. So when the voice of the Badass Counseling Show says right at the end of that commercial break, and now more to Badass Counseling to kick your ass, that's what it is. If your counseling, if your inner work isn't kicking your ass, if it's not draining you, if it's not making you look at the ugly shit from your past, you're not going deep enough. You're still running, which is what one of the second or third chapter in my book is about. You're running. You're running. And we've all done it. Some of us still do it. And we do it. At times we need to run in small doses, but you're running from the real shit. And that real shit, the shit you're running from, that's where your healing is. Whatever you get most upset about, whatever you most want to avoid, whatever you get most angry about or most uh, sad about, whatever you can't bear to talk about, that's where your healing is. Whenever I get a client coming in the session, I fucking love this. Client will come in the session and say, ah, Sven, you know, I had this thing happen this week, but I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I start laughing at them literally in their face. And they're like, what? I'm like, you know, I love you, but what the fuck? You think you're going to put that little fucking truth bomb out there and I'm not going to fucking light it up? And they're like, all right. <laughs> it's like, whatever you're avoiding, that's, that's where the healing is. You know, I mean, the, the cave you most fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. To quote my favorite writer, Joseph Campbell, come on, man. All right. So anyway, I am here to kick your ass, but in a loving way. But I'm doing it because this is where the healing is. Just like a strength coach in a gym is there to kick your ass because you claim to want to have a better body. You claim to want to have better health. You claim to want to be stronger. Their job is to push you. And and they they're, if they're you know, worth their weight. They know when to push hard. They know when to push slightly. They know when to read you, how to read your energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I'm in the business of. So all of that being said, um, it's, I guess it's a little bit of a setup for the next question. When a client complains about the same thing every week and isn't using tools, how do you address it? Now, Lizzie, I'm going to assume that either you yourself are a therapist of some sort, or you are that person. And you're wondering, you know, how a therapist should address it or might address it, or it's a friend. But um, this is sort of a question. It's, it's a great question. So I'm going to read it again. When a client complains about the same thing every week and isn't using tools, how do you address it? I would ask a very simple question. Why aren't you using the tools? And it's an uncomfortable question because they may say, I, and I've had people say this before. I literally give homework at the end of every single session to my clients. And I tell them, listen, you don't have to do it. There's no pressure. Sometimes life gets in the way. Sometimes you just don't want to, or you think it's fucking stupid, whatever. You don't have to do it, and I'll never scold you. I will ask you about it in the next session, because if you have done it, I want to go into it, all right? But I always give um, homework, different readings, or different things I want them to do, or write out, or questions I want them to answer uh, in their journaling. All right. And so what you're asking me here is, when a client complains about the same thing every week and isn't using tools... How do you address it? My first question would be, why aren't you using tools? Why aren't you um, taking action to um, change this very thing you're complaining about every week? But I would say simultaneously to that, I don't care if you take the action or not. 
all right? I'm never here, and I tell my every single client, when I start counseling with every single client, one of the things I make very, very, very abundantly clear is I will never push you to take action. Furthermore, I will never engage in pumping you up to take an action. Because if I have to conjure the energy, or if I have to talk you into taking an action, we're forcing it. We're forcing it. I don't believe in forced action. I believe in inspired action. So my job is to simply talk about all of the blocks that are keeping you from, uh, is, that are keeping you stuck or keeping you from taking action you claim to want to take, okay? My job, I absolutely believe if we just talk about the blocks and flush all that out, then when it's time to take action, you not only will know when, you'll know exactly what you want to do and you'll have the energy to do it. There'll be no conjuring necessary. So what I'm fundamentally saying is that with my clients, um, I tell them, so often in life, we're terrified to say things because there's an implicit understanding, not just in counseling, but in life, there's an implicit belief that if I say something, then I have to do it, right? I've said at past times in my life, well, quit talking about it and do it, right? Which is really what you're saying here. Um, you're saying I, I, when a client complains about the same thing every week and isn't using tools, how do you address it? You know, it's like fucking do something, shit or get off the pot, right? Well, how do you address it? You address it by asking, what's in it? Why aren't you doing something about it? Why aren't you using tools? Well, I think they're stupid and I think it won't help. Okay, you don't have to use it. Um, or maybe they say, because I'm afraid to. Great, now we've just cracked open another level of conversation. Now we're just dropping it down a level deeper. You keep complaining about the same thing every week. Furthermore, what I, I would say in that situation to a client, I would let my own natural curiosity come in. And I would say, listen, I could be totally fucked in the head. And if I'm off base, just take this idea and throw it in the fucking trash. Say, Sven, you're a fucking moron. I won't be offended, all right? But what I sense in this case, I'm, let's just say I'm having a conversation with Susie and Susie has complains about the same thing every week, which by the way, I never allow because we're digging deeper into why the fuck, what is at the root of the complaint, the pain or the fear or the anxiety, whatever. Um, but uh, I would allow my own curiosity to get in there. And this is where it gets really powerful. And I would say, you're afraid of something. You're fucking afraid because nobody complains about the same thing over and over and over again without taking action unless they have a fear. Now, maybe it's the fear of what people say. If you do it, maybe it's potential repercussions. Maybe it's the potential fallout. Maybe you've gamed it out in your head. You've overthought it and overthought it. And you're convinced that if I go this direction, this will happen. Or if I go this direction, this will happen. So we are addressing the fears. Well, that's what it means to get those fears out of them. If someone's complaining about something and not taking action, it's usually fear. It's usually fear or conditioning, the beliefs they've been taught about themselves. Either one, go down the road, route of fears or go down the route of shit they've been taught to believe about themselves that keeps them from taking action. And now we're at like 18 levels deeper in this fucking conversation. Now we're not just talking about surface complaints every week. Um, but it, it requires courage on the part of the counselor, the courage to ask the fucking hard questions. Why aren't you doing the work? And I'm not judging. I'm just fucking curious. Why aren't you doing the work? All right, moving on to the next question. How can I harness an energy inside me to defend me? Seems to not exist, neither to defend nor improve. Okay, I love that question. I love that question because it gets to this notion of energy, right? Um, well, actually, it explicitly states energy. Um, and energy is, the way to know self is to read your own energy, okay? It's not up here, it's a feel. And I always tell people, you want to know what your path is and what your path isn't in any given situation? Which path gives you energy or brings a sense of calm? In other words, exuberance or calm, and which path 
brings more anxiety or um, more fear. And it's usually, not usually, the path that brings exuberance or calm, exuberance or relief, if it brings those two things, it's you. Okay. And that relates, that's sort of the setup for this question. How can I harness an energy inside of me to defend myself? It seems to not exist, neither to defend nor improve. Oh, it exists. It's not that there's a presence, uh, an absence of the energy. It's fucking there. It's just there's so much packed on top of it. And what's packed on top of it is all of your pain, all of your fears, but especially all the shit you've been taught to believe about yourself. And you know what pain, fears, and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself? Do you know what they manifest as? Depression and anxiety above all else. It, it breaks down your defense mechanism. You know how in medicine, I know nothing about medicine, don't claim to, but they'll say, you know, maybe we all have a gene for cancer inside of us, every single one of us, but unless the circumstances are right, that gene won't manifest. Or, in, or you know, if you have the cold sore, if you get cold sores, right? Pretty common virus. Um, when do they often manifest? I know for me, I get them basically once a year, November. Why? Change of weather. Um, it's an anxiety time of year season. Um, the holiday season is starting. You know, often if my body gets cold, my body energy is being spent on other shit and I'm just getting run down. And when my own defenses are run down, the virus has power to spring up. Well, yeah, you're asking the question, how do I harness that energy inside of me? The energy is inside of you, but it's been broken down. It's being suppressed by the fact that you have so much fucking pain and bullshit you have been taught to believe about yourself. And that's why I tell people, my job is to reach down your fucking throat and pull out your pain, pull out your fears, pull out those core beliefs that you were t- that got pressed into the uh, cement of your soul, that got poured, that cement got poured over your core, your rock bottom core self but it's under there and all the energy comes. The more you pull that shit out, the more natural energy you have. The more you pull out all the the beliefs that, oh, I suck, see, I'm no good. Yeah, I really am too fat, too skinny, too tall, too short, too stupid, too smart, too this, not enough that. All of those messages, and I don't matter, all that shit, all of those messages cause you to believe you're not worth defending, cause you to believe they're right. They zap your strength. They suck the life energy out of you. And so you can't defend, you can't improve, you don't have the motivation. You don't have the motivation because your life energy is being massively suppressed by all the bullshit that's inside of you. That's why if you never do anything in your life, at least have the courage to pull out all that fucking pain and all of those core beliefs because that is what is keeping your authentic self down. That And there's a natural wellspring of energy like you can't even know until you've experienced it, all right? Next question. So I'm in college, I don't have many friends and I'm scared to go out of my room. How do I get out? If you're scared, obviously that means you're fear. Uh, first of all, I would encourage you to start journaling about fear. What is it you're most afraid of? The people won't like you? That you won't meet anyone? I'm guessing that's it, okay. But keep journaling out all your fears because that's what's blocking you. Um, when both my kids went to college, they went to school on the other side of the country and they didn't know a soul. Actually, my daughter, uh, she took a gap year and she went and worked in orphanages in Uganda and Tanzania, then went to school across the country. So, you know, a gutsy young woman. Um, but, uh, yeah, getting out of that room, every single college kid goes through that, you know, in their first month, their first six months. And eventually you just do. And you bump into people in the cafe line, you bump into people at class and you say hello. But if you're terrified of going out, it means you're terrified that people won't like you, which means that's the real problem. The problem isn't what's out there. The problem is what's in here that is causing you to not go out there. The problem is the inner work, not the outer stuff. 
you believe there's there's fear out there. You believe there's potential pain, not fear out there. Fear is in you. You believe there's potential pain out there that people might hurt you. They may not like you. And that's shit going on inside of you from way back there. That's the shit you have to get out of you. Next question, and this will be my last question. Just scrolled past. Hold on. I just had it. Basically, it was how do you trust yourself again after massive life failure? And I didn't catch the name of who posted that. But as a person who has had massive life failure, massive life failure, as a person who counsels people who have had massive life failure, I've had clients who have literally lost you know, billions of dollars AUM. I have had clients who have lost over a billion dollars of personal wealth. I have had clients who have lost their entire family, clients who have had people murdered, clients who have done things in war, et cetera, over the decades. All of these equate to massive grief, massive loss of pride, massive sense of failure. How do you deal with that? You go into it. The cave you most fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. You go in. And maybe you have to do it, you know, once a day for 20 minutes in the morning or early in the morning, or maybe you do it once on the weekend, but you have to be deliberate about going in. And maybe it's with therapy, maybe it's with counseling. Uh, in my book, I walk you through all that shit and I recommend powerful tools. One of them is, uh, of course, the Sedona method, um, which is not for the faint of heart. It's a technique, it's not a concept. But you have to go in, massive failure. The people who accomplish the greatest things in life are the ones who have gone through the greatest failures. I mean, look at Steve Jobs, the iPhone, the iPod, oh, the iPad all came after he got fired from a fucking company that he started in his fucking garage, all right? His, well, his parents' garage. The greatest successes come after the greatest failures, but they only come if you have the courage to go in and the more you decharge all of the thoughts, all of the memories, removing all of the emotional charges, because it's the emotional charges, it's not the memory, it's the emotional charges, the feelings attached to those memories that are weighing you down and keeping you from moving forward or even living. That's the root of your depression and anxiety. That being said, we have wrapped up Another really great episode of the uh, lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. And I thank you for all your questions on behalf of Rob and KC. I say thank you to everyone around the world and I have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.